Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Simon Jackman, Professor of Political Science and the Chief Executive Officer of the United States Study Center here at the University of Sydney. And before I begin, I pay my respects to the Gadigal people, the custodians of the traditional custodians of the land on which the University of Sydney stands. I, I pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. Today, we're discussing the future of US defense strategy in the Indo-Pacific, a, a topic perhaps of no greater interest uh, to, to our foreign policy and defense team here at the United States Study Center. And of course, a, a huge topic for the Australian strategic affairs community and the US strategic affairs community uh, uh, for that matter. And today's event will be run by the director of the Centre's Foreign Policy and Defence Program, and of course that's Ashley Townsend. Um, but our special guest uh, joining us from Washington DC uh, is Michelle Flournoy, who is co-founder and managing partner of West Exec Advisors, and of course perhaps better known to the Australian strategic affairs community as the former co-founder and chief executive officer of CNAS, the Centre for a New American Security where she uh, continues to serve on the board. Um, and also, um, Michelle served as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy from February 2009 to February 2012. She was the principal advisor to the US Secretary of Defense in the formulation of national security and defense policy, oversight of military plans and operations, and playing a key role in, of course, National Security Council deliberations. Um, Michelle also led President Obama's transition team at the Defense Department. Um, we are so delighted uh, at this particular moment, um, so close to, a, to a, an intense um, American presidential election, um, to have Michelle's time this morning, uh, giving us her insight on, on, on what is such an important topic. And, and one that, of course, suffice to say, remains, I think, strategic issue number one in the Australia-US relationship, irrespective of the election outcome, um, a topic of, in, of intense interest and, and as, as no doubt we will get into in just a, a moment. Ashley, um, thank you for um, putting this event together today. Um, I'm gonna hand over the balance of our time today to you, but um, thank you again, Michelle. Thanks everybody for joining us. I, I so look forward to the next 56 minutes. Simon, thank you so much uh, for that introduction. Um, and Michelle, again, from me, thank you uh, for taking the time this evening, Washington DC time, uh, to be with us here at the US Study Center for what is, I think, gonna be a really interesting uh, discussion. Well, it's great to be with you all and looking forward to the conversation, thanks. Thanks, Michelle. Look, I thought we'd begin today's uh, conversation by rewinding uh, a couple of years um, to the launch of the National Defense Strategy Commission's report um, that made for quite dire reading uh, here in the Indo-Pacific, but, but in, in many ways globally. Um, the commission argued that the United States was facing a crisis of national security and could no longer be sure of its capacity to win a future war with Russia or China. Now, the commission is a group of former defense officials, military leaders, uh, leading strategists, argued that it was a combination of the enduring wars in the Middle East, um, the constrained defense budgets that had been in place for some time, uh, a decline in US military readiness, and also um, insufficient modernization of the armed forces over the years, 
those four factors that had led the military uh, to become ill-equipped um, to defend the totality of America's global security commitments in an era of emerging major power competition. And some other analysts have called this uh, variously a, a crisis of strategic insolvency or a problem between the means and the ends of American strategy. So I thought we'd begin the conversation by asking, what's your take on some of these uh, dire pronouncements? And do you think there's been progress over the last couple of years? And after the election, um, how might um, a Biden administration address uh, some of these apparent uh, shortfalls and problems between aligning strategies and resources? So I think the, the commission's conclusion was sort of meant to be a wake-up call. It was meant to really kind of shake people by the shoulders and say, wake up, all is not well in the world of defense, um, because we really were in the midst of a, a fundamental shift of focus from 20 years of focus on counterterrorism and counterinsurgency in the wars in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and globally conducting counterterrorism operations to now the return of sort of great power competition with a rising China as kind of the pacing threat, if you will, but also very real concerns about our ability to deter Russia, particularly in the gray zone. And so this was a, 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 an effort to sound the alarm, if you will, to wake people up. Um, and I do think that message has been received by the Pentagon leadership, civilian and military. I think there is a great sense of urgency that frankly you saw enshrined in the national defense strategy that Jim Mattis put out when he was secretary. And the basic conclusion um, is that you know, this is a new era with new challenges. Um, we have a military that's optimized for the past 20 years, not the future 20 years. And if we just simply carry out, you know, the pro defense program with the current kind of inertia, over time, our ability to deter uh, and defeat aggression in Asia Pacific will erode. I don't think we're at that point yet, I wanna be clear. Um, but I think the risk will grow over time unless we do some things differently. And so, you know, I've just written a, you know, a piece for CNAS uh, called Sharpening the Edge, which basically argues that we are losing our technological and military edge um, unless we are to make changes. Deterrence is the name of the game. These are, you know, the United States, China, two nuclear powers. Neither one wants to go to war with the other but it's quite possible that we could miscalculate and particularly that Beijing could miscalculate and either underestimate US resolve or our capabilities. And we could find ourselves stumbling into a conflict that nobody actually wanted. So the, the key is how to sharpen the edge. And for me, it is really a question of, look, we've made major investments in a whole number of legacy systems from aircraft carriers to joint strike fighter programs to, uh, to other systems. What are the key emerging technologies that we need to integrate into the force to give us the operational edge, the decision-making edge? Um, and we can talk about what some of those might be. But to me, that's really the, the key, is accelerating the adoption of new technologies into the force at, with speed and at scale. Um, that, that, is like, that is the long poem intent in the next five to 10 years, in my view. Well, let's, let's drill into that a little bit more, uh, Michelle. Um, when it comes to the, the, the hard choices or the trade-offs uh, that people argue need to be made, they generally consist of, of a couple of buckets. There's, as you just uh, mentioned there, the trade-offs 
that the Pentagon really needs to make along with the military services between focusing on legacy systems that are available now, between updating legacy systems that are available now to deal with the, the short-term horizon, the, the now to five to 10 year horizon, where it's just not the case that um, bespoke and advanced new military technologies will be available in the field. And then later on, uh, there is the need to bring into the force and to integrate and experiment more quickly, um, uh, more advanced technologies leveraging new and emerging science and technology in the United States and allied countries to give a enduring competitive edge. Um, there's also a set of other hard trade-offs which we can come to in a moment that have to do with strategic policy, but focusing first on those, if you like, that are within the building, within the, the Pentagon, um, how do you think um, the, the, the COVID-19 crisis as it's, un, as, it's, as it's evolved and affected the overall US economy and the overall US budget, as well as the defense budget, how do you think that's going to affect this ability to make those hard trade-offs? Is it gonna pose any opportunities for the United States to reinvest in this, uh, in the sort of econ economic and technological basis of American power now in the five, 10 years into the future? Or is it really going to sort of strengthen those constraints on decision-making? Yeah. Given, given the severity of the COVID crisis here that we still do not have under control, the economic recession that it has induced, um, the range of you know, unmet needs that it's created on the domestic policy side, particularly for people, lower income folks and people who aren't fully caught by the social safety net here, um, there will be downward pressure on the defense budget, no matter who wins the election. Uh, the Trump administration and starting to develop its 22 budget uh, has already indicated a flattening or decline of the budget. I think you would see the same for, you know, if Pre uh, Vice President Biden were to come in. And let me just say a uh, disqualifier, uh, qualifier. I am speaking, you know, only for myself here. I have no official role in the campaign or the transition, so I'm not speaking for that, for the Biden campaign. Um, but my sense is that you'll see a flattening of the budget because of the very real and visible nature of the challenges we face, whether it's China or Russia or proliferation, uh, or, or Iran or what have you, um, I think there's a certain floor for defense spending. I don't think we're gonna see draconian cuts in defense spending, um, but we will see fewer resources, which means there will be tough trade-offs. Um, so I like to say it's not about how much we, it's not about spending more, it's about spending smarter. And I do think there are times when the budget pressure actually forces the trade-offs that need to be made strategically, but are there very difficult to make politically, particularly on Capitol Hill. So I'm optimistic that the department can make those trade-offs and can move in the right direction, can place some big bets on things like integrating artificial intelligence, uh, creating a joint all domain command and control network of networks, really doubling down on unmanned systems in the air, on the sea, under the sea, and so forth to augment our manned systems, human machine teaming that give us much greater um, capacity than we have with just manned platforms. And there's a, there's a long list of these things, but I think those, those investments are possible even within a flattening budget and that they're necessary to, to move us forward in the right direction. Uh, some, some of those um, changes in investments and transformations really the military 
um, um, we've been talking about um, for some time. I think one of our mutual friends and, and one of your former colleagues, Bob Work, um, was in many ways the brainchild of the third offset strategy, which was an attempt uh, during the Obama administration to do exactly what you just um, outlined. And of course, it encountered um, fiscal crunch and it encountered congressionally mandated caps on defense spending. Um, we're now in a period where you may have um, an incoming administration that is championing those ideas. And I think it's probably fair to say that there are some in this administration as well that champion those ideas. Will Roper, for example, has been one um, that is working initially at the Strategic Capabilities Office to do um, uh, tailored investments into updated technologies for existing and legacy platforms to make them more appropriate for an era of strategic competition. So there have been some efforts, but again, um, you know, what are those those trade-offs when it comes to the, you know, the, the fact that the U.S. national deficit is now approaching 100% of GDP and, and will will reach that target. Um, according to the Congressional Budget Office in the next couple of years. And when you couple that with the fact that the architects of the National Defense Strategy call for three to 5% real growth to implement it, it does seem from the outside that something has to give. Um, uh, I'm wondering what that something might be. And you've, you've previously talked about how um, non-defense investments in the United States economic and technological base writ large uh, might, and these are my words, uh, to a certain extent, allow the US to kill two birds with one stone, to reinvest in 21st century technologies, but also to begin the process or to strengthen the process of domestic innovation that will percolate through to defense. Could you comment a little bit on, on, that, um, on that vision, on that agenda, and, and, and how that can proceed in this fiscal environment? Yeah, well, I think, you know, if you see, look at the China-US competition, it is multidimensional in character. There's an economic component, a technological race, a military component, even a political influence, kind of um, which, which model of governance is going to sort of be, become more dominant in the region. Um, and if you, if you have that perspective, then I, you know, I think the, the view I have um, is that the first thing you have to do, what's most important, is invest in the drivers of American competitiveness, economic and technological, here at home. So invest in science and technology and STEM education. Invest in research and development in key technology areas where we need to have an edge. Um, invest in 21st century infrastructure. Um, adopt a smart immigration policy where we attract the best and brightest from around the world and then we welcome them to stay. If you look at the founders in Silicon Valley, half of them are either immigrants or first generation Americans. We need that sort of brain power to come to the United States to fuel our innovation ecosystem. So there's a whole host of domestic and economic policies that you can put in place that will be tremendous for, for accelerating our economic recovery and resilience but will also provide the foundation and the basis for, the, for, for keeping our edge in the security domain and the technology domain as well. I, I wanna go now, Michelle, um, back to the issue of hard choices in a slightly different direction. And that's to the, the hard choices and trade-offs that might need to be made um, in terms of strategic policy and, and, and in the United States global um, defense commitments. Um, 
I think it's, it's uh, well, you wrote recently in, in Foreign Affairs, actually, um, that Washington hasn't delivered on its promised pivot to Asia. And you noted that US troop levels in the region remain similar uh, to what they were a decade ago. Uh, I might also add here that many Asian allies and partners um, sort of recall unfavorably uh, the Obama administration's slow action in the South China Sea, even as they welcomed the administration's um, sustained diplomatic focus on US allies and regional institutions. Um, but there is a concern that in this context, in the context of the need to make hard trade-offs, that um, a future um, Biden administration um, might not be as committed to the Indo-Pacific um, as, uh, and, and a similar outcome happen as per the, the, the pivot to Asia, which never really materialized in its full complexity. Now, now you weren't in the Pentagon at the time of the pivot. I think you'd left sort of right as it was just after it was announced, certainly before um, the island building in the South China Sea really took off, but uh, you were in a, in a position to uh, have a bit of a sense of why some of those decisions that the Pentagon made um, didn't come through to full fruition. Why do you think that the, the, the Obama pivot didn't happen completely? And, and do you think that um, the, the objectives behind the pivot will return and be embraced by a Biden administration? Well, I think one of the principal things that undercut the Obama administration's intent for the pivot, not just military, but economic, but diplomatic, full sort of, uh, you know, a major reallocation of strategic focus was the Budget Control Act. Um, when Congress basically took half a trillion dollars out of defense um, and, and as well as cutting other discretionary accounts like the State Department um, over a 10 year period. So it was just like having the rug pulled out from under the strategy. And we had to go back to the drawing board and, in 2011-2012 to do, um, you know, a revised and less ambitious strategy. Um, that said, I think the sense that Asia-Pacific, the Indo-Pacific, will be the region that has the greatest impact on the security and the prosperity and well-being of Americans for the next 50 years or more, I think that sense is still there. And there's actually a fair amount of bipartisan consensus around that. So the question is, how, are we, how can we be more effective um, in, in the region? And I think for me, the first thing is we have to show up again. We have to show up diplomatically. We have to put, make sure that all of our important diplomatic posts are full and with filled with competent uh, people. Um, we need to show up in regional fora. We need to be leading in you know, uh, various uh, bilateral and multilateral groupings. You meant, you know, we were talking earlier about the quad meeting um, that just happened, a very important forum. So we need to show up. Um, we need to have a strategic approach with our allies that really sits down and says, look, the only way we're going to um, handle or address the challenging parts of China's rise is together. You know, U.S. strategy towards China has to be by, with, and through allies and partners. And that means sitting down with each individual country and saying, let's look, what are, taking stock, what are our shared interests? What are our shared values? Where can we cooperate in a way that's going to meaningfully improve your own ability to defend your own sovereignty and interests, but also make us all better contributors to coalition operations when they need to, need to occur. What's the right division of labor for freedom of navigation operations, for example? 
Um, how do we work these issues together? So I think there's a lot more that could be done um, to make more use, better use, more strategic use of our alliances and partnerships in the region. Um, and I do think that, you know, speaking of trade-offs, I do think that one of the things that will happen in a new administration, if there is one, from the start is a, a global posture review. Um, where do we have forces deployed? Where or do we have assets deployed? Where is the tempo being eaten up every day? And is that posture really aligned with our interests and the strategy? Um, and if not, let's make some adjustments. You're never going to have enough to have no risk. You all, you know, the fun part of strategy is setting the priorities. The hard part of strategy is deciding where you're going to accept and manage a degree of risk. And there will be certain geographies where we need to accept more risk in order to put more focus and attention on Asia. That really, I think, gets to, to the, exactly the heart of this issue on, on, on strategic policy trade-offs. Uh, and of course, the other thing people say when they're talking about strategy is if you want to talk strategy, talk budgets, talk prioritizations, talk risk in those terms. Um, I think an issue here for discussion is the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. Now, uh, for our audience who may not be aware of all of the wonky details of what happens in the Pentagon and Congress, um, the United States um, for the last few years has invested um, at the behest of Congress in a European deterrence initiative, um, which was originally, if I'm not mistaken, uh, one of the brainchilds of uh, the late Senator John McCain. Um, now, the European Deterrence Initiative was designed to strengthen U.S. forward posture, um, as well as U.S. capacity to operate with allies and partners in Europe. And at the moment, uh, it stands at about $4.5 billion per year in terms of that investment. Um, Congress is now instigating another push um, to, to shepherd through, if you like, a similar initiative uh, for the Indo-Pacific. And indeed, uh, the United States uh, Indo-Pacific Command, which is the military command uh, located in Hawaii and responsible for um, this part of, of the world, the part of the world in which Australia lives, um, uh, Indo-PACOM has pushed for the kinds of investments that a Pacific uh, deterrence initiative um, uh, could bring to the Indo-Pacific investments in posture, investments in advanced um, capabilities and experimentation with allies, investments in, in critical enablers, things like munitions and fuel stock, hardened and distributed bases, et cetera, in the region. Um, even though the price tag on the Pacific Deterrence Initiative at the moment is quite low in the vicinity of, I think, $300 million in year one, which is a lot smaller than the European Deterrence Initiative. Um, to us in the Indo-Pacific, it does look like a good start. So my question, uh, by way of long preamble, Michelle, is uh, do you think the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, um, given that it currently has bipartisan support, um, is something that a, a future Biden administration uh, would pick up with, uh, would run with, would invest in as a way of starting to uh, address the problems that you've identified in the Indo-Pacific um, deterrence piece? I would certainly hope so. Um, again, I think the name of the game is strengthening deterrence and doing that together with our allies and partners. And I think, you know, I think even just having the, the, the initial incarnation of this is very important. And as we, you know, as the U.S. sits down with its allies and partners and does capability assessments, really understand, you know, where are the gaps, what's needed, how do we, you know, help fill those gaps, then I think the opportunity to, to, to grow that fund and to grow the level of effort is, is certainly there. 
you know, part of my job as Undersecretary of Defense was doing a lot of bilaterals. And I was always frustrated with the fact that we weren't, um, we didn't have a sort of strategic multi-year approach to much of our security assistance and cooperation with the smaller countries in the region. It was a lot of one-offs, a lot of, oh, we're interested in this shiny object or that, you know, new platform. But we really didn't have a shared plan of what are we trying to achieve together over the next five to 10 years, steadily working away to get to a different end state. And how do we, you know, leverage things like the Pacific Defense Initiative, things like our security assistance, our foreign military financing, our foreign military sales, our exercises, all the things that we're doing together, how do we leverage those to actually strategically move towards a different end state? Um, whether that's, you know, a country like Vietnam, having better maritime domain awareness and able to better protect its own sovereign waters. Um, whether, you know, you can, you can work through different possibilities, but I think a more strategic approach is absolutely what's needed. And I'm really pleased to see this initiative getting started. Um, in terms of the, the role of allies and partners, both in this initiative, but also I think probably more broadly in, in sort of US um, military and strategic um, 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 planning for the Indo-Pacific and operations in the Indo-Pacific, um, the, the concept of collective defense or, or federated defense has really gained traction in recent years. I, I think you've referred to in your, your piece in Foreign Affairs um, an idea that might be called collective defense insofar as the US needing to work closely with allies to find, you know, en enhance and cooperative ways to respond to regional challenges and distribute roles and responsibilities. Uh, many others have in this similar way pointed to the need to do this in light of, you know, frankly, frankly speaking, in light of uh, an acknowledgement that the United States um, won't over time have the capacity um, and probably won't have the credibility to in an, to single-handedly uphold the regional balance of power in the Indo-Pacific without greater and focused and coordinated contributions from allies and partners. I think this is something that here in Australia we understand very well. I would probably also argue that Australia and Japan um, are at the forefront of efforts by US allies to work with Washington towards this kind of strategy. And Australia's new defence strategic update, which is primarily focused on what Australia can do independently um, in terms of contributing to deterrence and contributing to shared US-Australia security objectives in the Indo-Pacific um, is, is one uh, marker of the seriousness with which uh, this country is taking the need to step up in the context of constrained resources and harder strategic challenges. So I, I wanna maybe press you a little bit more to, to think about what are some of the options for countries like Australia and Japan as we start to think about um, implementing a strategy of collective defense. For, for Vietnam, um, for the Philippines, for India, countries that are um, either smaller or more on the front line, less developed militaries or non-allies, there's a certain set of requirements. But for Australia and Japan, um, we can probably do quite a lot together. What do you think some of those things might be? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I agree that I think the U.S.-Australia relationship is probably furthest down the road in exploring this concept of how we can approach, you know, have a common approach, but have a, a, a fairly explicit division of labor um, in some areas. Um, so I think, you know, I think there's certainly an operational component to this, you know, the, and for things like sustaining a steady tempo 
of freedom of navigation operations or a steady tempo of, um, you know, of exercises in a given area or what have you. Um, there's also, I think, partner capacity building aspects where um, for some of the smaller states, um, sometimes maybe dividing, you know, the labor in terms of we're going to focus more on one, Australia will focus more on another in terms of training, assistance, advising, even perhaps equipping. Um, but there are also times when we're both working with a partner and we want to make sure that that's synergistic, that we're, we're not pulling them in different directions, um, that, but we're actually, our efforts are additive um, and, and mutually reinforcing. Um, and then there's at the much more, you know, a strategy level, I think, you know, really um, looking at ways that we together can try to push for things that would reduce risk. So, for example, we don't have a real risk reduction framework with China. We don't have an incidence at sea agreement. We don't have the kinds of measures that were put in place back in the days of the U.S.-Soviet tensions and the risk of miscalculation leading to some kind of inadvertent conflict. Um, but that's a place where, um, again, this is not something that I think will be well received if it's just the U.S. approaching China. I think we, I think a number of countries need to approach China together to say, look, this is too, the risk is too high. We need to agree on some, some standards, some norms, some procedures uh, to reduce the level of risk and miscalculation. Uh, Michelle, when it comes to setting those agendas for, for countries like Australia, um, I think it's, it's probably fair to say two things. One is that um, moving to a future where the United States or you know, Indo-Pacific Command um, relies more heavily on critical enablers provided by countries like Australia and Japan um, would, be, would be a new development. Of course, we've, we've done this in the Middle East. Uh, Australia's um, um, uh, wedge tails, for example, have been integrated um, you know, into multinational coalition operations in a plug and play sort of way where mm -hmm. The flags weren't important. We were all part of a single, uh, if you like, military machine at an operational level working together. But we haven't done that in the Indo-Pacific, certainly not yet. We are moving towards building the integration capacity for that. And I note recently there were advanced Australia-US SE integration exercises held in Guam, which were a part of that process. But, but it is something new and is also something potentially uncomfortable for both sides on the US side, because as a global military, it's accustomed to not having to rely on other countries and the political and operational risk that can come with that. And on the side of Australia or other countries in the region, the sense of being drawn into or, or entangled into you know, broader, um, you know, larger ally strategic plans in the region is a perennial challenge for small allies. And one that of course, countries like Australia would wanna have greater say and input in, which is itself um, a, a difficult process. Um, are you confident that there's sufficient um, awareness of these issues and, and more importantly, willingness to, uh, to try and work through them to, to nut out this collective or federated approach to deterrence and defense in the region? You know, I mean, I think it will depend on, you know, who the next administration is, unfortunately, but I do think um, I do think there's a very strong desire for deeper consultations and to explore this question of 
You know, division of labor, um, what, you know, in operations, yes, in building capacity, yes, whether it actually gets to, okay, you'll build this capability so we don't have to, or you'll field that capability so we don't have to. I think there'll probably be uh, less of that just because there may be situations where the U.S. is going to get involved and Australia won't and vice versa. And so, I mean, even with the, in our closest moments of relationship with the U.K., there was some reluctance to sort of not have a U.S. capability. I mean, there was a point I remember back in the bottom-up review where we said, should we just count U.K. brigades, ground force brigades, so that we don't have to build that many? And even in the height of the closeness of that relationship, there was had to say, no, 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 these are two sovereign governments. You can't, you know, you can't assume that they will come to every, you know, see every operation the same way we do, even though that's the, been the history for the most part. Um, I think there's a huge amount of um, opportunity though in the technology area in trying to, as we go down the road of some of these new, in some of these new areas, investing together, developing together, testing together, fielding. Um, I think that's really important to interoperability, but there's a huge amount of synergy. There's some early recognition of this. Um, InQtel, which is the kind of the venture capital arm of our intelligence community, um, has started to make uh, investments in Australian companies just in the last year or two, um, recognizing that there's a lot of this that we can perhaps accelerate our progress as allies if we invest together. Um, so I would, I would put a lot of emphasis on the technology piece. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point on, on InQtel. And of course, you know, we've, we at the US Study Center have been in, in, engaged with them since they've been operating here in Sydney as well as in Canberra. Um, and that's a really important initiative. Another important initiative, and, and I'm going to start to pivot here, ladies and gentlemen, to the question part of today. So I can see some questions coming into the chat and I've got some pre-submitted questions that I'm going to start sampling from now. Um, the other part, Michelle, of the uh, of the technology integration piece and where there is opportunity for US, uh, for the United States and Australia in particular is through the national um, technology and industrial base. Now, again, this is going back uh, to the end of the Obama administration um, where this thinking began. I think it was two years ago that Australia was brought into the NTIB as it's called. And for our viewers, uh, the NTIB is really an attempt to um, create a two-way um, defense industry zone between the United States, Australia, Canada, and Britain, so that if you like, um, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts and we can share technologies, we can use each other's developments, we can play to our respective strengths in order to um, more quickly compete with, um, not just China, but more com quickly compete with the speed at which technology is advancing and percolating into the military. Now, the reason I bring up the NTIB, Michelle, is it's often um, looked at as an example of a really good idea that doesn't get the political will it needs to come to full fruition. Uh, because as you will know much better than I, over the last couple of years, although the NTIB has managed um, to um, initiate, I think, one important program with Australia, which is um, uh, the Pentagon contract for the supply of critical minerals to DOD. Um, beyond that, it has suffered uh, from export controls, from ITAR regulations, um, from a sense in Congress, not a sense of Congress, but a sense in Congress that the United States um, particularly 
um, uh, in this administration needs to rely on a buy American approach um, to defense industry, defense technology, technology broadly. Um, and actually, there's a bill in the House at the moment, which is somewhat concerning, which would strength, which would increase that Buy American provision for DOD to 100% um, being pushed through or being examined right now in the Senate, in the House rather. So my, my question here is, um, how can the US and Australia do better to make things like the NTIB a reality? What sort of changes um, do you think might be possible? Well, I think that um, you're, you're right to note there is a very strong protectionist sentiment in some quarters of um, actually both on some parts of both parties, Republican and Democrat. And, um, and there's and particularly post COVID and when there's so much concern about economic recovery, there's a strong sentiment of, you know, we need to onshore more manufacturing onshore more of our supply chains. But I do think this moment where every, you know, they, everyone in the United States is concerned about um, our reliance on China in certain supply chains. First and foremost, defense, national security related, but now also certain aspects of the medical and pharmaceutical supply chains in the wake of COVID. So I do think this moment of where those supply chains are gonna get very close scrutiny, it is an opportunity to examine when it's not workable or not affordable or not optimal to actually try to bring that back to the United States for, because for whatever reason, you know, that sector may, it may be difficult for us to be competitive in that sector or what have you. Onshoring or reshoring to allies is the next best thing, right? And so I would be very interested in looking at, are there things that we rely on China for um, that we need to reshore to Australia or to other partners in the region, like a Vietnam or whatever, but, but countries that we have greater trust with, countries that we don't, we know won't use, you know, our economic dependencies as a method of coercion against us when we have political disagreements and so forth. So I do think perhaps there's an opportunity to refresh this initiative because of the supply chain concerns and see if there's some particular opportunities in this moment to, to maybe reinvigorate or expand or build on some of the US-Australia cooperation on the industrial base side. Uh, I should note there that uh, that question that you've just responded to, Michelle, with regards to the um, how the US and Australia can do more to sort of disentangle supply chains on critical minerals and technology was from Jim Caruso, the former um, acting head of mission, the US Embassy here in Australia, and now at Bauer Group Asia. I, I want to turn again to another aspect of the, of the NTIB and the technology partnership. Uh, and this is picking up on questions from my colleague, Brendan Thomas Noon at the US Study Center uh, and, our, and our mutual colleague down at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, Michael Shoebridge. And it has to do with the, um, you know, the, the capacity um, or, you know, in terms of, of policy initiatives for the US and Australia to get to a point where Australia can co-produce um, uh, advanced munitions here on this continent, potentially under license um, from US companies in ways that would play to the mutual advantages, not just of strengthening resilience in the, in, in, in the technological basis of both countries, but I think importantly, and going back to our discussion about the, the, the Western Pacific strategic balance, having a stock of supplies and a capacity to produce something like advanced munitions 
not in Guam or in not in Hawaii, rather, or in, or in continental United States, but here in Australia, much closer to um, where tensions may uh, flare up, and certainly in, in part of the world that is still um, in many ways outside of the range of some of China's um, medium-range ballistic missiles, etc., cetera, uh, could be also very, very important from a military resilience perspective as well, from a logistics perspective as well. Um, so do you think that sort of initiative, which I know has been something that different stakeholders on both sides of the Pacific have been interested in, do you think that's something that could uh, get off the ground in, a, say, a future Biden administration? Well, again, I can't speak for a Biden administration, but I can say that I personally think that it's an idea that's worth exploring. And I think if, I think the politics of it are challenging, but um, because of, you know, industrial interests, but I think in particularly if it was done through an industrial partnership between an Australian firm and an American firm that might uh, pave the way. I'm, I'm thinking it's not, you know, these things are not impossible. When you think about the SM-3 missile that our Navy uses, which is a critical um, munition now for us, or a critical missile um, deployed throughout the US Navy, that was a co-development with Japan. Um, and it was very complicated to work through all the details, but it was a very successful example of what, what can be done. Um, so I know what you're talking about is a little bit different, but I think it is worth exploring. Um, and I think it is worth trying to, to, to create the right incentive structure for both sides to see it as a win. Um, ladies and gentlemen, can you please continue to send through your questions to me in the chat? I'm trying to get to as many of those as I can. Um, I don't think I'll get to all of them, but um, please do send them through and wherever possible, I'll pull questions so that we can um, air them now uh, with Michelle. M Michelle, I want to talk, uh, turn now to another question um, from some in the audience. Um, and this is going back to sort of larger issues of deterrence. And it's from Ewan Graham at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. He's asked you to speak a little bit more about the role of nuclear weapons in US deterrence posture, especially with regards uh, to China. Uh, he notes that Joe Biden um, has suggested that he wants to see a reduced emphasis on nuclear weapons, which I think uh, is consistent with where the Obama administration uh, was as well, but not necessarily where this administration is. Um, uh, but is this realistic, he asks, given the constraints that are placed on US conventional capabilities? And if so, what does that mean for the stability of deterrence in the region? You know, I think that there's a very strong bipartisan commitment to maintaining a strong, secure, safe, reliable uh, nuclear deterrent. And you're about to see the United States embark on an incredibly expensive uh, modernization program of all three legs of the triad. I think a new administration is likely to come in, even if it's a second Trump term, and scrub that modernization plan be, to see if it can be done more cost effectively. But the commitment to modernizing the deterrent is there. Um, I think what when people talk about putting nuclear weapons in the background, I think it means more that we don't want a world in which we are increasing the um, prominence of nuclear weapons uh, in our strategy or the likelihood that they would be used early in a conflict and so forth. Um, with regard, but with regard to China, I think the bigger question is the strategic stability question now encompasses more than just nuclear weapons. It includes, it includes if you look at Chinese military doctrine, 
the potential for early strikes against assets in space, the potential for early cyber attacks on the US homeland in and around military bases where power would be projected from, the potential use of hypersonic weapons. So there's a broader range of capabilities, nuclear and non-nuclear, that have to be factored into strategic stability talks. And one of the things that's concerned me is that this is the first administration that's had no strategic dialogue with China beyond trade. Um, and even every, every administration in, in the United States since Nixon has had strategic stability or strategic talks with the Chinese, whether we were in good times or bad times. Um, we also need those talks because in addition to talking about the issues we have with them, troublesome issues, we also, we've got to cooperate with China. We, how, do you get, how do you address climate change without China? How do you address the next pandemic and do a better job of preventing and reducing its, its impacts if you don't talk to China? How do you deal with, them, with proliferation in North Korea if you don't engage China? So there's a very rich agenda here. Um, and I think you would see, I, I hope you would see in a Biden administration, that kind of strategic engagement again to address the full range of issues, the areas where we have problems that need to be resolved, the areas where we have differences, but also the areas where we absolutely agree that we need to cooperate. I'm really glad you, you went there, Michelle, because um, again, this issue of the need to both um, cooperate with China on not only big issues of global governance and international policy, such as climate change or pandemic recovery and the opportunities um, for humankind were the US and China to be able to work well together on those challenges, but also for a country like Australia and many US allies in the region, um, our deep uh, and enduring um, uh, uh, reliance, I don't think independence is too strong, but reliance on China and China's economy uh, in terms of our trade relationships is also a factor. And again, the world is not as it was during the Cold War where you could separate um, it into two blocks. So there will be deep interdependence between our two countries, between all countries, including the US and China. Now that gets us, I think, to a question about how you balance the need to simultaneously strengthen deterrence vis-a-vis -vis China and the credibility of that deterrence through enhanced diplomacy in the region in ways that can um, ensure that China doesn't see an opportunity to settle some of the scores um, that, it, uh, that it has in its sights in the Indo-Pacific, whether that be Taiwan, other parts of the First Island chain, the Senkaku Islands, etc. Um, but at the same time, work with them um, on these major and important issues of global governance. Of course, um, major powers can walk and chew gum, um, but I'm interested in some of your thoughts on how um, any future administration of any political persuasion should go about juggling those two different and, and very, you know, in, in many ways, strained objectives. You know, I think that the, the number one risk to deterrence in the near term is China believing its own narrative about the United States, that the United States is in decline, it's, in, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's withdrawing from the world stage, it's a mess internally, it's divided, it's preoccupied, it still has COVID out of control. Um, and so now's our moment to step up, to step in, to fill the vacuum, to test the limits. 
that is the greatest danger. So I go back again, the best way to combat that is to show that that's not the case, to get COVID under control, to start reviving our economy by with all the investments and competitiveness that I talked about, um, to show up uh, on the world stage again as a leader with our allies and our partners alongside. Um, and that is the most important thing to give China pause. In addition, we've got to invest in the capabilities that we're gonna to need to demonstrate that if you do pursue an act of aggression, it will not be successful, or we will be able to impose such costs that it won't be worth it to you. But first and foremost is getting them to question that narrative of US decline. Um, in terms of managing both a, uh, you know, the tough, discussions we need to have with China on areas of disagreement and the areas where, you know, the ability to cooperate. I mean, my own experience is that that's been the name of the game for a long time. You know, when I used to sit down with my counterparts in the PLA, um, there were, I had, was instructed to give some very tough messages. I was, but I was also instructed to see if I could deepen cooperation in some areas. Um, I was instructed sometimes to give them, be very transparent about U.S. planning and a t intent to try to correct some of their assumptions about us that were just plain wrong. And so, you know, this is what diplomacy is. This is what great powers do. You have to be able to cover the full agenda and not paint someone to one corner. It's either it's not just friend or foe. It's competitor and partner in cooperation at the same time. And the name of the game again is to prevent that competitor to manage that competition um, in a way that you you know you protect your interests and your allies, but you also prevent that competitor from becoming an outright adversary. Because again, between two nuclear powers, that's a very dangerous situation to be in. And I think, Michelle, that um, goes a little bit to, um, to looking at the outcome of this year's OSMIN, where um, in spite of some of Secretary Pompeo's fairly um, confrontational comments on, on China, um, you could see clear intent on the Australian side to cooperate um, and coordinate with the United States on issues of deterrence and strengthening our defense position, but also play to a different narrative and a narrative that is, uh, I would argue, speaking personally, much more in tune with what other Indo-Pacific allies and partners actually want, which is to say a productive relationship with China on a range of the issues you've just discussed, as well as um, a, a, a productive relationship with the United States to coordinate, network, and improve our collective approach to dealing with the challenges that China can also present. Uh, I want to turn now, um, in the last few minutes that we have for this, to, to two questions, if I can, but I'll give you the first, um, uh, uh, Michelle, from our ambassador in um, Indo uh, sorry, in Honolulu, um, Jane Hardy. Um, Jane Hardy asks uh, that in the next few years, how should a future U.S. administration go about maximizing the effectiveness of, of the dime in gray zone competition with China? And I think this question maybe goes to the broader context of the need to shape the strategic environment, to use national defense strategy terms, 
um, rather than just prepare for deterrence and high intensity conflict. And shaping, of course, is something which countries of Australia's size are probably far more interested and concerned about doing and doing well than just preparing for um, the, uh, when the balloon goes up, so to speak. So how would you go about maximizing the effectiveness of the dime in gray zone competition? Um, just to make sure I heard you correctly, DIME is in D-I-M-E, Diplomacy, Information, Military, Economics. Sorry, exactly, yes. Okay. Um, so the first thing I would say is we're, uh, the next administration will have quite um, a job to do to really rebuild the State Department and rebuild the diplomatic corps um, and the di diplomatic range of instruments. Um, I think that's a, a critical uh, project. I think it will, it can be done, it will be done. And that will enable us to show up again more fully in the region. And I, I can't underscore how important this is in terms of not only in, in terms of engaging our bilateral relationships, but also showing up in regional fora, um, whether that's, you know, an ASEAN forum, whether it's the East Asia Summit, whether it is showing up at a standard setting body relative to data and the internet. Um, so we got to show up. I, I do think that building coalitions of like-minded states to, to push back on bad behavior when we see it from China is the most effective thing. It's one thing for, you know, a secretary of state to demarche the Chinese about something. It's another thing when 25 other countries all sign up say same statement or all do the demarche together. Um, that's when the Chinese tend to stop and take notice and say, hmm, maybe we need to rethink, at least for the moment. Um, so I think that's it's very important. I think the, the thing we need to do beyond that is really um, take a, a fresh assessment of what do we think China is doing, whether it's the Belt and Road Initiative, whether it's PPP, PPE, uh, PPP diplomacy, um, whether it is other instruments they're using to gain influence, toeholds, leverage, and where do, where do we have to care? You know, there's some things that they can find, go ahead and do that, be my guest. But there are other things where there needs to be a, you know, an answer from us as allies. And it may not be symmetric. It may not trying to be offering the same thing or competing for influence in the same way, but we need an answer that um, is true to our interests and values. And I do think that, you know, that failure to have, what is our answer to BRI? What is our answer to some of these efforts? Um, I think that's a very important piece of strategy work that we need to sit down and try to do together. Michelle, I couldn't agree more. I, I, would, I think we could go on in this track for uh, another hour or two. And unfortunately, we don't have the time. You've encapsulated in uh, your answer to that question, my last one, which actually was a question about the Belt and Road Initiative. So I, I thank you for that. Um, we, we are at time, ladies and gentlemen, um, because uh, we do have another commitment at 11 a.m. So we will need to wrap up today's webinar a little bit early. Um, but I would ask um, all of you, and on behalf of the US Study Center, to, to share, um, it, it, uh, to, to, to join with me rather, in thanking you, Michelle, for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, your comments are 
extremely important, I think, for Australians and others in the Indo-Pacific to hear as we approach the US election. And of course, the wisdom that you bring from your decades of experience in looking at these topics is, I think, something that we'll all take something away from as we think about these issues going forward. So thank you again for taking the time to join us today at the US Study Center. And we wish you all the very best uh, in Washington, DC, as you all um, uh, move towards uh, approaching um, the kind of post-pandemic uh, life that we here in Australia are fortunate to be in at the moment. Well, Ashley, thanks so much for inviting me and really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, hope everybody out there stays well. Thank you so much, Michelle. All the best. And ladies and gentlemen, I'll just draw your attention to the next set of events coming up from the United States Study Center in our Election Watch series. Of course, we have <clears throat> next week uh, an in-conversation event with Greg Sheridan, Simon Jackman, and Zoe Daniel on takeaways from the 2020 election and what's at stake for Australia. After that, late next week, we have a very interesting event with the former Chief of Staff um, to Donald Trump, Mick Mulvaney, in conversation with Australia's former ambassador to the United States, uh, Joe Hockey. So please, as always, join us for those events. You can subscribe at ussc.edu.au slash events. And we thank you so much for taking time to be with us at the United States Study Center online.